You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We are in the book of James, the New Testament book. We are embarking on the fifth chapter. So there are only five chapters in James. We're getting to a close. So only about 10 more sermons. Just kidding. James is written by Jesus' little brother. And the theme of James is real practical. It's about how does faith work with your everyday life. And today, it's about how faith works with your money. It's not that often that I have cash on me. Maybe you're the same. But have you ever noticed when you look on the back of it, there is a four-word phrase that is on every denomination of U.S. coinage and paper. In God we trust. And you might want to know, okay, where did that get started? During the Civil War. At a time that our nation was in the process of self-destructing. You know, anytime a nation is fighting against itself, no one wins. Everyone loses. And there was this ominous sense that the nation was in desperate peril. And there was a need to return to God and to the church. And people were saying, unless God rules over us and reunites us, our nation is doomed. So in 1861, a pastor in Pennsylvania decided we need to put God on our currency, and that our whole nation needs to be reminded that apart from God, we are doomed. So he sent a letter to the government, and here's what's crazy. The government read it and acted on it. I mean, like we're in the realm of miracles here. So the, te- the secretary of the treasury sent a letter back to the pastor. Dear sir, No nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. In 1864, in God we trust, was minted on all our coins. And by 1951, in God we trust, was on all of our paper money. So we have a connection to God with our money, at least in writing. And the question is, how does faith work with your money? How does God involve himself with the decisions that you make about the dollars that you spend? And here's the big idea. You can either use your money to worship God, or you can worship money as your God. Ultimately, you have to pick one. Jesus said, you can't love both money and God. You will get to worship and serve one and hate the other. So you got to choose. So where does my faith ultimately reside? So as we get into James 5, James is picking up on the theme of his big brother, Jesus, that you can't worship both God and money. And we're going to look at three perspectives on our finances, our wealth, our possessions. 
Those three perspectives, I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then we'll outline them a little bit more. The first one is selfishness. What's mine is mine. The second one is stealing. What's yours is mine. And the third is stewardship. What's mine is his. So let's jump in. The first perspective is that theme of selfishness, that what's mine is mine. James chapter 5 begins this way. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. He's talking here about the rich. Now, we've examined this previously, but I want to do it again briefly because in our day, it seems like everything gets polarized and weaponized and even our finances, we tend to think in two categories because so much of our political climate is dominated by the categories of Marxism, not the categories of Scripture. And our modern ideology is that there are rich and there are poor. That means there are the oppressors and the oppressed. But in the Bible, there aren't just two categories. There are four categories. There are the godly rich and the godly poor, the ungodly rich and the ungodly poor. You see, the Bible is not so much occupied with the question of are you rich or poor, but are you godly or ungodly? So you can be like Jesus if you're Rich or poor? Let me explain what I mean. So Jesus today, right now, is he rich or is he poor? He's rich. I mean, heaven's paradise, right? No one in heaven misses where they used to live. But when Jesus was on earth, was he rich or poor? Poor, very poor. As an adult, he didn't even have a home. So you can be like Jesus, whether you're rich or poor. That means the issue is, are you godly or ungodly? The Bible does give us examples of all four categories. We've been through that before. But here in James 5, he's talking about those who are the ungodly rich. It is about the way they acquire and distribute their wealth. But first, let me give you three examples of the godly rich people in the Bible. Because otherwise, we'll interpret this wrong and we'll say, see, God hates rich people. That's not true. He's against those who are ungodly. But there are godly rich. In the Old Testament, there are several examples. We could point to Abraham, David, Solomon. But there's another guy as well. His name is Boaz, who is very rich. He owns a company. He owns a field. He has employees. And the employees love him. They literally sing his praises. So what happens is that in this story, there is a Moabite young woman who is from a tragic family line. She converts, moves to Israel to be with God's people. 
Her name is Ruth. She's poor. She's a widow. And she ends up in the field of Boaz. And Boaz, being generous and godly, tells his men, okay, protect her, make sure she's safe, be generous toward her, provide for her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. So this guy is very rich. He's very godly. Well, Ruth and Boaz end up getting married. They eventually have a kid. That kid has a kid who happens to be King David. You see, she is in the family line of someone else you may have heard of. His name is Jesus. So that's one very godly and rich person. There's another person in the days of Jesus who was rich and godly. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, the prophet Isaiah said that when Jesus dies, he will be buried with the rich in his death. Now, we've already established when Jesus was on earth, he was poor. And when Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea, who was rich, gifted Jesus his tomb for his burial. And then the third person in the story of the early church, there's a woman named Lydia. She's a very affluent, successful business leader, and she is generous toward the ministry of the Apostle Paul. She sees that God is at work through Paul. He is on the front line, so she wants to be on the supply line giving generously. The point is, you can be godly and rich. You can also be ungodly and rich. And here James is talking about the ungodly rich. And what James says about them is that they are hoarding. In other words, that's failure. God has been generous to them, and they are not being generous back to God or to others. They simply take everything and don't give anything. James says they have more than they can ever use. They're not even looking for an opportunity to meet a need. Again, we're not talking about the government resetting economic equality. What he's talking about are Christians being personally generous. He says that they have so much wealth that their gold and silver is corroding. They have so many clothes that they are disintegrating. And God is watching. You mean people have more than they use? We are Americans. We have stuff in our homes and stuff in our garages and stuff in our attics. And then we have storage units for the stuff that doesn't fit into those other three. I mean, let's be honest. Almost every one of us has stuff we don't use, food, clothing, possessions, you name it. And look, it's fine to enjoy what God has given you. But if you have more than you need, and most of us do, then you need to look for opportunities to help those who are in a difficult place or, or season. And James connects all of this to the last days and the judgment. He's going to use three different phrases in these first six verses. In verse 1, he talks about the miseries that are coming upon you. Verse 3, 
fire in the last days. And in verse 5, we haven't gotten to it. You have a day of slaughter. And what he's saying is that your stuff is going to be a part of your judgment before God. You may think, man, I am winning. But the answer is, well, it may seem that way. Before you stand before God and everything is taken at once. So selfishness is what's mine is mine. How many of you are parents, and you've seen this in your child, you don't need to teach your child to be selfish. You know, that's mine. I, I had it first. Selfishness is just our innate, fallen disposition that is ours apart from God's re-hardwiring our heart's desires. And James talks about the fact that there is a connection between our heart and our wallet. We can't see it, but God does. And Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying, you know what? You can learn about who you are by looking at how you spend. So you can say, I love my family, but are you generous toward them? You can say, I love God, but are you generous toward God? So the first problem is selfishness. What's mine is mine. So what's in your heart? What's going on inside of you? The second problem James delineates is stealing. What's yours is mine. Here's how the verses continue. Look, the wages you fail to pay, this is stealing, right? Look, the wages you fail to pay, the workers who mowed your field, so there are laborers and there are landowners here, those people are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This here is defrauding. Defrauding is you owe something and you're not going to pay it. How many of you are business owners and you've experienced people who don't pay their bills? That's a big problem. And here it's the reverse. This was harvest season. And they aren't paid until the end of the harvest because you get a percentage of the harvest. But the harvest is now over. The grain is already collected. The harvest is, is there ready for the workers then to be paid. The landowner has bankrolled all of this. He is supposed to pay his employees who made it all happen, and he chooses not to. He keeps it for himself. He's stealing from them. So what James is comparing and contrasting here are the ungodly rich who are the landowners and the godly poor who are the laborers. This is the employer-employee situation. And James is talking to the Christian employer. So if you own a business, if you're in management, are you treating those who work for you rightly? So the ungodly rich, they are powerful. The godly poor are powerless. The ungodly rich, they have all kinds of means by which they control the courts and the legal system is on their side where it's not for the godly poor. 
I mean, you know you're in trouble when, they, when, the, when the person would say, well, go get a lawyer and sue me. You're like, I can't. I'm a day laborer. I can't afford an attorney, and I don't have the legal right in that culture that a landowner does. We're even told that the ungodly rich are attacking and opposing those who are godly and poor. They just want to get paid to feed their families. It's just wrong. Now, the good news is this. God hears their cries. He says that their cries have entered into the ears of the Lord. Here's the good news. Even if you don't get justice, there is a Lord who will bring justice. So they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to defend you because what's happening is that those who are ungodly and rich, they're behaving in their family like it's Caesar's family. Caesar ruled over the Roman Empire like a mafia family. It was just brutality, lawlessness, raise taxes, seize property, murder people, steal empires. So the ungodly rich, they were acting like Caesar's family. And the godly poor, they were like whose family? Well, Jesus. And of course, James. If you don't know the story, Jesus and his kid brother James and their siblings grew up a poor family. So their mom and dad were Mary and Joseph. And they were rural, hardworking, poor. He was a carpenter. And they would go to the temple to worship the Lord. And when you go to the temple to worship the Lord, you bring a sacrifice, usually a lamb or a goat. But if you were poor, there was a provision in the Old Testament that you could bring a lesser sacrifice, two birds, that would count as your part of worship. And it says that Jesus and James' family had to bring the poor sacrifice. And James is now saying, you're treating people like you would treat my family. Hardworking, blue-collar poor. You're extorting them. You're taking advantage of them. So the big idea is this. You can have money And love it so much that you're using people because you just want more. Or you can use your money to love people. Let me say this. We all come from a family line. And our family line determines how we tend to view money and wealth and possessions. So when you think about your family line, what do you see? Some of you might have come from pretty well-to-do families. Some of you, not so much. And sometimes it even fluctuates between generations or maybe even year to year. Maybe you have a, a, a boom year that's followed by a bust year. The question is not are you rich or poor. The question is are you godly or ungodly? Your income may fluctuate, but your character needs to remain the same. Let me tell you about my family. Salibi dates all the way back to the first century. And it means 
my cross. So we've always been a Christian family. My dad was a first-generation American. His parents came over from Lebanon and Syria. They came to America when they were young because they were looking for better opportunities. This is a great country. Even those who hate it aren't leaving, right? They were a working-class family. My dad served in the Navy during World War II. In fact, my mom served in the Navy at the same time, and they both happened to be stationed in San Diego. That's where they met. After the war, they got married. They settled in Jacksonville, Florida, where he went to work as a salesman, worked hard until he died of cancer at the age of 60. But here's what my siblings and I received from our parents. We received their love for us. We received their love for Jesus and his church. And we received their desire to be generous and giving. They gave generously to God's work through the church and to organizations outside the church that were also helping people. Now, we weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination. We had all we needed. But my parents gave us the legacy of faith. They were godly people. My point is this. We all need money to live on. We pay our mortgage, our rent, our utilities. We have to buy clothes and food. But how you grow up determines how you see money. Again, we all need money, but is money the most important thing to you? And if you happen to be wealthy, good for you. And the question is not, are you rich or poor? Again, the question is, are you godly or ungodly when it comes to how you acquire and use your wealth? By the same token, if you're poor, don't hustle people. Don't take advantage of people. Don't con people. Fast forward to when Lori and I married. For quite some time, we didn't have a lot. There were several years of schooling, me first, and then Lori several years later. A lot of part-time jobs in that time frame. But we still found ways to give to God and to others, and now we're doing okay. And we like to give. It's fun to be generous. So we don't want to be selfish. We certainly don't want to be stealing from others what belongs to them. And that leads us into that third perspective, which is stewardship. That is, what's mine is his. And let me say, this will change not only your life, this will change legacies for generations. First, he told us in James 1 that everything belongs and comes from God. This is what we read several weeks ago. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So who owns everything? Where does it all come from? It comes from God. It all comes from God. And it's from his hand into your hand. That's the ownership part of it. And now the stewardship, James 4, 2, and 3 that we saw a few weeks um, ago, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, meaning alone. 
Again, it's not that God doesn't want us to enjoy life. But if all you are concerned about is what you want, that's poor stewardship. Stewardship is this uniquely biblical view. It's not a cultural view. You won't get this at the university. You won't get this from politicians. You won't get this from our polarized economic climate. But the view of the Bible is that God is the owner. We are the manager. That's stewardship. So you say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for my job. Thank you for my car. Thank you for my house. Thank you for my food. What do you want me to do with it since it's all yours? If I were to come to you and and say, all right, I'm going to give you $1,000. Would you give them 100? You keep the other 900? You would say, wow. Well, we call that tithing. We tend to think, no, 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 it's mine. And the Lord says, no, actually, it's mine. And right now, if in your heart you're saying, Paul, why are you talking about my money? Well, we just hit the root problem. It's not your money. It's his. How many of you love to spend other people's money? All teenagers should just go ahead and raise their hands. It's all God's money. We're all spending God's money. And so it's asking him, what do you want me to keep? What do you want me to share? So a steward says this, all I have and all I am belongs to the Lord. And I simply ask, what does he want me to do? So this is two things. It's stewarding wisely so we can give generously. Stewarding wisely so we can give generously. Stewarding wisely is how you receive and distribute your wealth, your money. And then giving generously is only possible as you steward wisely. If you don't steward wisely, you can't give generously because you've blown it all. So let me give you some basic principles for what it means to steward wisely. Number one, give your tithe to God. Tithe means 10%. Number two, give your taxes to the government. Did Jesus pay his taxes? Yes. I mean, God comes to earth and they're like, hey, I heard he owns everything. Let's see what we can get out of him. That's the government. (laughs) Number three, this will blow your mind. Spend less than you make. Number four, when you can, save. You know why you save? Because something's going to happen. Something's going to go wrong with your house. Something's going to go wrong with your car. Something's going to go wrong with your teeth. They aren't yours anymore. (laughs) And number five, invest. That's for the future. It's retirement planning. Obviously, if you work for a company that has those benefits and you've got some kind of retirement assets, come, I mean, that's, that's an awesome thing. But if you're selfish or you're stealing, you can't be stewarding because it's all about you. You see, stewardship is thinking about others. 
And then as, a, as you steward wisely, you can give generously, and that's worship. Did you know, according to the Bible, worship doesn't happen unless you bring your sacrifice. In the Bible, there are zero people who go to worship empty-handed. Worship is bringing a sacrifice. It's something you bring as an offering unto the Lord. Now, some of you are worried right now. You're worried that you're, look, you're looking at all the doors, looking for the bouncers who are going to empty your wallets for you as you leave. The good news is you are a generous church, not only in regular giving to the church, and we're ahead of where we were last year, and we haven't passed the plate in three years. We simply let you decide to give as you leave. There are offering plates at the, those exit doors, or you give online, or some of you bring it to the church office, or you mail it in, and then... When a need is presented over and above that, you more than meet it. And what's really cool is we don't give to get a blessing. We give to be a blessing. The Bible says it is more blessed to give than to receive. Your giving allows us throughout the year to throw an occasional party for free. And one of those is coming up. It's Vacation Bible School. It's a huge week-long party for kids. Why do we throw parties for free? Because we're practicing for heaven. Heaven is like this incredible party where the Lord Jesus pays for it all. It's called grace. I want to invite Maggie and Rick to come up as they're going to close us here as I finish out the sermon. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you don't earn your way to heaven. You don't pay your way to heaven. You simply receive Jesus and he gets you in for free. Jesus died for you. He's now ruling and reigning over you. And he wants a relationship with you. And he wants to work on you. He wants to work with you. And he wants to work through you. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.